Welcome everyone to Los Libertinos podcast. My name is Carlos Abelar. I am your host. This is Chingazos and Fire episode number five, 5.0. Our guest today is Thad Russell. He is the founder and CEO of Renegade University. He is the host of the Unregistered podcast, and he is the author of A Renegade History of the United States, which I'm holding right here. Mm. And um, also, mm. I believe he's also, there's probably a few, uh, but there has to be less than a handful of uh, Black drag queen historians in the country. That's kind of a cool, <laughs> unique one. And uh, and to me, uh, someone that I admire and someone that uh, definitely in, in the arena of ideas, he definitely likes to uh, throw chingazo. So uh we're 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 happy to have him here uh welcome dad oh man thank you carlos that's a beautiful introduction i haven't gotten an introduction that good in a long time man okay it man. means a lot to me well coming for it's you man thank you thank you um yeah. so so um i'm new at this game and um uh, i have uh, uh subscribers that are you know i'm trying to build up my numbers and thank you for being on i would like to think that half of my subscribers are people that might know who you are and know some of your background and the other half are probably like all my primos and primas and friends and all that stuff you know so they don't know who you are so um could you please give a a a, a background uh in, in, into kind of your where you were born raised some of your upbringing family and how you kind of navigated to get to a point where you kind of wrote this book and then you are now on the on on this journey of uh you know rene of of being a renegade in in, in all the the the, uh, the the schooling and the book and in your podcast wow yeah so i was born in berkeley california in the san francisco bay area in 1965 my parents were radical socialists revolutionaries and they actually when I was about five or six years old, my mother and stepfather got jobs in heavy industry. Like my stepfather became a steel worker and then he was a truck driver for many years. And my mother worked as a, a clerk when they were highly educated, middle-class people, sort of cultural elite types actually, because they were going to organize the workers to, for a revolution, like this hilarious idea among like really hardcore Marxist groups back then. I don't know if they still do that. I think they might, but I think but it was a big deal back in the 60s uh, and 70s. Marxist groups would do that, actually. It's, it's this weird, like, really underground subculture that no one knows anything about. So that's my point is that that's how hardcore they were into that. Um, they were not hardcore into being parents. <laughs> so, you know, like, every time I debate a socialist, or have, or just talk to, hang out with a socialist who knows about my past. They, they assume that uh, everything I'm doing is like an Oedip Oedipal struggle, you know, like trying to kill my parents uh, in a way. And that could be true. I mean, I don't know. It's then again, like my parents were political in the sixties. They started out being opposed to the Vietnam war. Like, that's the thing that I care about the most, you know? Um, they protested for free speech. 
on the UC Berkeley campus. That's like one of the things I care about the most. They, my mother was in sit-ins to desegregate spaces here in the Bay Area. That's something I care about the most, right? Like we all agree, those are fantastic fucking causes that wouldn't it be great if the left cared about them now, things like that. Like Jesus Christ, we all, all agree on that stuff now, but certainly like anybody on the left and any libertarian would immediately coalesce around those issues. And those are huge issues, but, so that was the left then when my parents were in the left. So I guess in a way, like, I'm just trying to get them, I want them, I want not my parents, but like the left in general to like go back to that. I'm not trying to demolish them or kill them. Yeah, no, not at all. I want I want the left of the counterculture of the 60s um, when it was for these beautiful, beautiful causes. My God, you know, like ending the war and then also like sexual liberation. That was also what the left was doing. And, you know, that was when feminism was real. That's when then there really was a patriarchy. That's really when women were kept out of like occupations. Like, you know, that was real in the 1960s. They allowed to do what allowed to do like, large sections of society that is a big deal like we're all down with that we're all really down with that and you're proud of that too um, obviously right i mean you're very proud of that yeah that part you know and and now the left is a bunch of psychotic fucking asshole authoritarians like there's there's like nothing good about it not a fucking dude yeah not so one thing so so we'll get to that but <laughs> but uh but uh I've I've heard you say no. that um that that you were for, you were part of the first uh, uh school system to that that had like the mm -hmm. the integration of the bu of the busing and and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I uh that's kind of some of the stuff of your upbringing that you know I'm gonna know more of this stuff because I've been following you for a long time. You know, so you know you know so yeah. so I, I want to get into the weeds of that a little bit because I I'd like like I said my primos and deals and all that. I'd be like. Oh man, you know that dude definitely had a life, you know, something that a little a little different <laughs> than that what than we, we would have gone through, you know, especially Latinos or yeah. whatever. Like, so um, can you speak a little bit of that as as, as you kind of go through yeah. the, that journey here with me a little bit? Yeah, so your journey, the, your journey. Yeah, so in one of the early Democratic primary debates, this might have been in 2018, but it was for the 2020 presidential election. It, you know, it was early on. I know this because Kamala Harris was in it. And she was the first one to drop out, so it must have been one of uh, the big moment of the night was when she called out racist and because of his hangout with Ku Klux Klan you know Robert Byrd and all that shit you know actually silly shit but like and it, but she tells it she does it she had this story prepared where she says Joe there was a little girl in California who got I forget what she said but got on the bus every day and was taken across town to racially integrate the the schools you know and she talked about it as if it was this wonderful magical thing this heroic wonderful thing that the city did and that's why you know what he said was such an insult to her civil rights legacy as being part of this civil rights thing. and and you know and that's certainly how well I don't know I'm not sure how I thought about busing back in the day but yes yeah, so anyway she Kamala Harris and I were born and raised in the same, almost the same neighborhood, um, about two neighborhoods away. She was in West Berkeley. I was in Southwest Berkeley. We're the same age exactly, um, I think within a year. And I believe we were the same class. So I think we were in kindergarten at the same time. Berkeley was the first city in the, in the, in the world, first city in the world 
to bus school children for the purpose of racial integration. So I got on a bus and went from my dad's house across town to Columbus and she got on a bus and went across town to Thousand Oaks. Um, what does that mean? So you went from what's that, like, what, what, how did it, what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, like, what was those, the, I mean, what was the colors that were interchanging here? I mean, it didn't even make that much sense. Cause like the neighborhood I lived in some of the time, like half the time, my childhood was 60 to 70% black. So, but they would bus us as a black neighborhood. Right. Cause it wasn't like, but house, I guess, I don't remember how they did it, but yeah, I mean, it was, but anyway, I mean, the point is, you know, they were, it was a big social engineering project with children. I mean, fuck that about race. Ugh. Like that's, that's Nazi shit. Like putting, look, think about this. Putting children on buses, number one. The government, the government putting children on buses, number one. Put that image in your head. What does that look like? Huh? Ever seen anything look like that in the past? Right? for a racial social engineering experiment what the fuck does that sound like that's straight nazi shit now they weren't being taken to death camps <laughs> so you know that's different but that's not all the nazis were doing the nazis were also trying to perfect their race they were doing all kinds of racialist science bullshit like this using human beings. And a lot of it they thought was positive for the, for the Aryans. You know, they did experiments with Aryans. There was all sorts of, they did eugenics. They sterilized some people. They, you know, they did all sorts of manipulation of human bodies, Aryans, non-Aryans to, you know, for all sorts of purposes. So it's part of that web of Nazi science. Absolutely. In my did, view. Did your, um, uh, educated parents agree with the busing or it was just that it was part of the school system. So you just got to do it. Yeah. I was thinking about that. I don't remember any discussion by them about it. Um, I know that my, I know that my best friend's parents didn't like it. And I remember thinking, Ooh, they're my, Ooh, that was like a conservative idea they have. Cause you know, Berkeley's a cult, yo, like it's a big church here. You can't, we don't have Republicans. I didn't know a Republican until I was, I went, went to college. I never met one. I never met. I never, dude, I never met a Republican. I didn't know a Christian. I didn't know a Christian. I didn't know a practicing Christian or a Republican until I was in college. It's insane here. Like you're such an, you're in such a bubble. Um, so, you know, and my buddy's fret parents were total liberals, but they had this like one idea. They just didn't like that. They didn't like, there were a couple of things where they were like on the side of the Republicans. and was like, Ooh, they're not like quite right. Um, my parents, I don't know. They're, I mean, they had shitty politics, obviously, on a lot of stuff, but on race, actually, they were, my mother especially has been more skeptical than a lot of people about this anti-racism woke shit. So, um, she's, she's actually been pretty good in terms of being like more clear eyed about what's been going on with racial politics than a lot of lefties have been, but, and, uh, your, and, and your schooling, whether the busing or all that part, was it like, it was elementary, middle school, high school. It, it, I mean, you, you did that all that through that, or was it just well, you like, want know, you want to know the funny shit though. Sometimes people, you know, the only, the only actual racists I've known in my life who, who I'm like, pretty much sure a racist like real racist you know like are my mother and father <laughs> both both you, you uh my dad used the n-word like like meaning it <laughs> you know, 
not like quoting rap lyrics like he meant that shit with the hard r you know at the end um and my mother definitely has said things that were they were racist so what did that I mean to know. what did that mean to you back then if there were i mean so what so i mean yeah i mean i mean i mean i've heard it too i mean i've heard it too you know but but yeah i mean i guess never really the the I haven't heard too much of the hard R stuff. These are, I know, but I know, I know, but these are, I'm talking about, these are like lefty, like civil rights leaders, you know? I mean, my mother's in like a movie. You can see her. It's a doc, big documentary called Berkeley in the sixties. And she's in it. She's like, you can see her like at a, a sit in, like protesting de uh, segregated lunch counter in Oakland where I live now. Um, but yeah, she's, she's racist. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Uh, I, I like to. No, she definitely, she definitely is. No, no. I was just thinking about just something, like she did like about six months ago. Some she hired some black dudes from East Oakland to like move her furniture, and I came over to like help out, and she was just like, "Oh my god!" And I said, "What's the matter?" She said, "Oh man, oh the weed, oh god!" And I said, "Oh really? Okay, whatever. You know, it's just they're just moving your fucking furniture. Who cares?" She said, and she said, "Well, they're from East Oakland." But um, I don't know. It just yeah. Anyway, but, um, sorry. Your, but but your but but if, if if you took if you took well, I mean, I have this thing where I say that um, uh, if you go to a comedy show and laugh at racist jokes, to me, you're not racist. But if you were able to take your mom to a, a comedy show and you you would sit right next to her and and listen to racist jokes, which a lot of comedy is about, like kind of you know has the racist overtones, the stereotyping, and it's funny. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, I mean. You know, to me, the word that the racist charges is, is carries it's too dense because you're just you're saying it right now. You're almost talking about it that, you know, your parents were probably doing a lot of stuff. What they thought were probably was to was to advance some uh, 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 bad social uh, government policies. But they were saying, like you said, the N word and all that. But you're saying maybe they were racist. But, you know, sometimes people are just the way they are but their actions sometimes speak louder than words and their words that are kind of in the background shouldn't be the the forefront of what well, they are you know well let me let me throw out a theory that i just came up with as you were speaking um so my parents you know were the adults that i knew most intimately right obviously i mean i might i mean and or i should say i knew them more intimately than maybe anyone because I knew them for long, although I only lived with each one half my childhood because I split when I was five, but, but, um, and I went back and forth basically, but, uh, but you know, like I saw them like up close and personal, right? Like we know our parents in that way. And, um, they got plenty of white guilt shit going on. Like they're not as bad as some people, but they got it, you know? Like I remember my mother saying how much she would she would cry during the Jesse Jackson campaign of 1984 and 1988. You know, um, I think I think that white racial white liberal racial politics is all basically an expression of white guilt about like actual like fleeting racist feelings and thoughts, like what my mother and father had. Because I, I was so intimate with them, but they probably the rest of the world wouldn't have seen that. 
shit. And I'm suggesting that there's a lot of people on the left, on the left, liberals and the left, who probably have, I'm sure, have fleeting racist thoughts that they feel terrible about, really guilty about. And so, and the, but the way that they process that guilt is by projecting it onto other people and then attacking the other people that will annihilate them so that we don't ever see the actual original racist thought that caused this spasm of violence and craziness you know what i mean so but it doesn't also have to be just it doesn't also have to just be like the political left right i mean it's 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 every a lot of people i mean i remember when uh one of your interviews and i don't remember the name but you interviewed a guy that did like i don't know it was either analytics uh for like internet stuff or internet searches and yeah i remember he just kind of said like oh yeah 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 oh yeah there's a lot of like racist everybody looks up racist stuff on their on the internet and things like that and and yeah, and and yeah, right. and i remember just thinking like i wasn't surprised but okay i mean right. so so but but also to me it's like so what okay all right right okay and also yeah. white people are, and white people are by by far the least racist so in this in this country i mean don't you think um i think it's probably <laughs> even every I, I think everybody i think it everybody's racist who isn't like somewhat nah. like yeah 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 like come on it's there it's just well the word racism sorry, me, i don't like the everybody stereotypes because everybody so what to me, me that, to me is like if wait, you don't wait, laugh if you don't laugh at a joke then you're weird hold on. wait let me let me take that back let me let me rephrase that what i meant was white people express racism less than any other group in this country that's for damn sure right I I, I I could see that for sure and, uh, uh, and maybe i would say because because in the in, in the race that started the game of government white people started the race first and then other people started getting their voting rights and they're trying to catch up and so so yeah when when, yeah, when, yeah. when, when you get a head start in in the game you don't have to project it you already know you got it you started the game a, a little bit ahead of everybody so sure. so yeah so i mean yeah I, I i can see that but it doesn't uh you know i mean everybody laughs at stereotypical jokes and shit like that man it's fun it's it's, it's you know you know i mean everybody yeah, laughs yeah. no i was just about to i was just about to say ethnic joke this is why ethnic jokes i think are so important because there are differences i don't think they're biological or innate or whatever but there are definite cultural differences right like there are definite cultures and there are different definite uh differences between them and i fucking love those fucking cultures and i love the differences between them and um i find them hilarious the differences between the cultures and i always have and so it's simple that's what that's all they are that's all those you know most of them are just mostly that ethnic or even racial jokes are just that just um, talking shit just people talking shit it's just it's and just white shit, and the thing know? is like white people like they've been the brunt of those jokes like for like 50 years man there's never been like <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> white people get white people get their asses kicked in the world of ethnic jokes right that's what black people black comics fucking make their bones on that they make their bones on like making fun of white people i love that shit no, no, I hear um, you, man. Yeah, I, I saw Eddie Griffin uh, uh, about a couple months ago, you know, because here in San, you know, I've been trying to live my COVID life the best that I can. And my wife and I went to go see Eddie Griffin and that he was talking some shit. And so some white people came in late, right? They came in late and sat in the front and he was like, what the fuck? You guys are late? We're the ones that are supposed to be late going to, you know, that oh, shit was yeah, funny, yeah. you know, that shit's funny. Right. It's funny. Right. Yeah. 
I know. Yeah, no, Richard Pryor started it. He was the first one, I'm pretty sure, who would like, he would imitate white people on stage, you know? And <laughs> and basically, it was all about how they were, how uptight and puritanical white people are. And I was like, yep, correct. Like, and that, that set me off. And I was like, when I saw that movie, when I saw live in concert, Richard Pryor, back in the 70s, that kind of began Thaddeus Russell. That was, that put that in my head. I was like, oh shit, there's black people because I was also really getting into black culture at that time. I was like, God damn. Yeah. Right. That's the difference. Like white people are like uptight and, and repressed and black people are like freer with their bodies and shit, you know? And I'm like, Oh, that's why I like that. I like that. I like them and I like their culture, you know, much better than this bullshit. Like school, like school was white culture. I fucking hated that shit. But, but the street, the street I lived on Otis street, you know, which was mostly black kids, uh, even though they tormented me sometimes for being the one white boy, like, nonetheless, like, you know, I was listening to soul music and shit. And like, and when I was a kid and listening to the lingo and just, just being around that was like, yeah, imme immeasurably valuable for me. Yeah. What and I got from what I got, what I got from growing up around black kids when I was a kid, it was huge. So, yeah. so from, so from Otis street to, uh, Ivy league school, how, how did, how did, how did you get into something like that? Because, uh, you know, you, you know, um, I, I, I would have, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure like I, I've never met you personally. We've had our relationship, you know, on, on the, on the phone and on, and on, and online, but I mean, you're mm -hmm. the only PhD person I know. I don't know anybody else has a you know, PhD well, and stuff like that. You know, you have that. I mean, I don't know, but, uh, so, I, I think it's yeah. cool, but you know, I mean, I don't know. You might know more people, but you know, I don't know so anybody. My, my like that. So my story is all chopped up, I guess. Like it doesn't make any sense in a whole bunch of ways. Like it's all full of, con it's full of contradictions. Right. So, yeah. So I spent, as I said, about half my childhood on Otis street. Um, and although the schools were all in integrated, so I was always around black kids my whole childhood, but, and Berkeley and Berkeley in general was really integrated, but, but, Otis Street, I lived at Otis Street for like half my childhood. The other half was in, my dad had a nice house, nothing crazy, but a nice house in the foothills, which is now like worth a, probably, I'm definitely over a million dollars. But back then it was just like a middle-class neighborhood. Um, but it was nice and like we're white and it was, it was all almost all white up there. So, and then it's Berkeley. So it's full of professors. So, and then, and then also my parents were all intellectuals right they weren't academics they weren't professional but they all been they'd all been to college and they were marxists so they like fucking sat around talking about fucking marxist theory all the time and politics and philosophy and history and yada yada and art <clears throat> so i was just surrounded by that shit and that's that's why i am who i am i i'm sure like i'm sure i was just surrounded by that way of thinking that way of talking those interests and i just I took them on and I imitated them. Um, so what were the, what were the, 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 you know, I mean, but yeah, but you, so, what were the good things you imitated? What were the things you take away that were positive? Like, gonna, you know, I was going to say like, so I was going to say like, it's, it wasn't such a huge leap for me to go to the Ivy leagues eventually. Right. Cause I had that kind of elite culture very, very much like my, my, especially my mother and stepfather were like, big snobby like europhiles they loved anything european especially french french stuff they loved they were francophiles really bad what is frank francophile franco what what did you say 
Francophile just means love of French things. Oh, okay. Francophilia is love, love. Francophilia is the love of French things. So my my parents were Francophiles. They loved French stuff. My my father, my stepfather, actually was uh, lived in Paris when he was a kid for a while, for several years. So and he speaks French. Um, so they had like like this high culture shit, right? <clears throat> um, and they went to my stepfather went to university. They all went to fancy universities. They all went to elite universities also. So I had that. You know what I mean? Like so it wasn't. So I sp I talked the talk. Like I knew how I knew I, I spoke the same language. I, I spoke the same way. I, but but I was lost in school and like my parents were totally checked out trying to like win the revolution instead of like being parents. So they just let me fucking literally wander the streets. I mean, I did wander the streets since I was like five. Um just by myself, you know. I mean, that was also back in the 70s when that was more like legitimate, but um so like I had no formal training at all in anything and not because I was completely checked out in school. Like I didn't learn any grammar. I still don't know grammar. I don't know the rules of grammar, Carlos. I swear to God. Hey, we're on, God. we're on, like, the, we're on the same team, dude. We're on the same team. I don't even know how to fucking spell and read. I figured dude. you <laughs> I was I, I know what a verb and I know like what a verb and a noun and an adjective and an adverb is and that's about it. Like I don't get yeah, isn't that wild? People like are blown away when they hear that. I was an Ivy League professor. I'm an author of two books. I have another third one coming. Major you know, you know, presses of you know, blah blah blah. <laughs> so but I had because I had no fucking formal training because no one paid attention to me in the fuck I was in these fucking factory public schools, which we haven't talked about, you know, which were just a joke. And um, my teachers were all like Kamala Harris, these authoritarian black ladies who wanted to like get their I guess I it was what was going on in part. But um, <clears throat> so um, but you became anyway, so you all, became part of that. But you became part of that, right? You became a, a college professor. I mean, so you yeah you, yeah you, I know you, yeah I got the <laughs> I got the ultimate revenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speak of that. What do you mean? Meaning what? Like what? You, I mean, you're saying that, but like I what? Showed, I showed those motherfuckers. Cause I, I mean, I had a bus driver when I was like being bused across town. When I was like in fifth grade or something telling me that I'd never amount to anything. Um, I mean, no teacher ever once said anything positive about me. Like it never said I was a good writer, never said any talent, never encouraged me, never said shit. And, and I got like straight C's and D's and F's. Um, I was severely disciplined on a regular basis, like all through school. I like was a truant. I played hooky constantly. I was like just ridiculous. I, I didn't learn a fucking thing. I mean, really nothing. And so I came out of high school just ass ignorant, like truly, like, but clearly with a lot of talent, just no one said anything. No one ever once said, Hey, Thad, you know, maybe you should go to college. Swear to God. Like my parents didn't even like bring it up. Can you fucking believe that? Like. They never even brought up that I should go to college. So I had to, I was like, huh. I remember my, my buddy was like walking down the street one day. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to take the SAT. I said, what's the SAT? Oh, really? Like that? Yo, I didn't know what the SAT was. Oh, shit. Even even I knew what, the, I mean, it, it, uh, college wasn't like a big thing, but man, like that for you, because especially coming senior. from, yeah, coming yeah. from an intellectual stuff, like you're saying, like a. Yeah, that's how, that's how fucked up my parents were. That's how that's how checked out they were. I'm talking that was that was seen that was September of my senior year. I didn't know what the SAT was. And then I finally I took like the next SAT and then but like I didn't know. It's so fucking sad. Like 
I didn't, I didn't know how to take it. I like, and no one like tutored me on it or anything. And so I like sat there like reading. The first thing you learn is you memorize the instructions. So you don't spend any time reading the instructions before you answer. Right. So like, I, I was like, I didn't even know it was on the SAT. I didn't know it was like divided into those sections. You know, one was verbal, but know anything about it. So I fucked, I got like me really mediocre, like five, 4530 on the S my SAT, my first one. People love to hear that. They can't believe it. They think I'm lying. I swear to God. Then I did, I retook it. I got 630, 620, which is like good, but like not great. I mean, like I'm way, I wouldn't have gotten into like all the schools I've taught at. That's the funny shit. I wouldn't, I've taught at five colleges and universities. I would not have ever been admitted to any one of them. As under <laughs> Um, so, so, so you were throwing chingasos, dude. You were throwing chingasos, man. Yeah. So I have a chip on my shoulder, you know, because I had to like do that all on my own. I got no one's encouragement, no one's recognition, no one's nothing. I did like, I had to realize I, I took a year off after high school just to basically sit and like, I realize now basically just to like figure out whether I was smart because no one told me. I didn't know. I was just sitting around, I just smoked weed and I worked at like a, like stupid retail jobs for minimum wage and like i basically did nothing for a year but like i remember that year like thinking am i smart like i don't know you know should Damn. i do this should i go to college and i, I did I, but i did remember like finally like I remember sitting on my porch thinking one day yeah no i i gotta do this and then i started studying for the sat and i retook it and got this much higher score and then i got into this college and whatever the rest is history but long winding road from there too but at least like i got on the track at that point and from then on i never stopped like the second i touched down in college i started running <laughs> and i haven't stopped since like like i've been doing the same shit basically since i was 19 like i just like as soon as i started college i was like oh give me the books let's go let's start talking about ideas let's like what's the radical take on this what's the radical take on that like let's examine everything let's i was like ultra curious I was like, let's get the, I want to get the, I want to hear the best like argument for conservatism, the best argument for socialism, the best argument for liberalism. Let's have it out. Let's have debates. Let's like, you know, like intellectual dude, I was into it. Like that shit was like watching like, you know, Ollie Frazier for me, you know, like watching like a high level intellectual debate was the, the same as like gave me as much of a rush as watching like high level boxing match. Um, but I didn't, you know, I got some of that, you know, um, and enough to turn me on well, well just so, so you know yeah. just so you know that uh when uh when uh i signed up for um the unregistered underground at the time several many years ago you had a uh signing up for it i i got a free book and and just so you know part of like the chingasos and fire of this uh of the podcast uh you know, I'm a boxing fan, and, uh, and 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 I guess maybe you knew that at the time. But when you sent me your book, you had put a uh, "keep your hands up," right? And 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 and, 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 when, and when I took that, and it was already this thought of in my mind that 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 yeah, I I, I also like ideas to throw chingasos at each other, and um, and uh, and uh, you know, thank you for that. I, I, it, it it was probably a little seed. To, to, to get to a point where I'm interviewing to you today, you know, and you just never know how, how those things play out, you know, so, 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 so it's kind of cool. So speaking of the book here, how do you get to a point where, you know, you don't know grammar, you know, you got the chip on your shoulder, you're throwing chingasos, you're in school and all that stuff, but you know, not, you know, you got a book, you know, 
a renegade history of the United States. How, how do you get to, to, to this point? And, and what is this about? I thought we were going to talk about boxing for a second. I got excited. Um, I watched I watched Canelo's fight finally last night, uh, the last one. Uh, that was impressive. He's always impressive. But anyway, impressive. we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Because um, Saunders was more impressive than I thought he would be. He had a much better jab than I expected. So I thought Canelo, like, like he, he, he gave Canelo the business there. And Canelo was like, fuck no. He imposed his will and his tremendous skill. That was awesome. Um, well, how did I get to Renegade? So I go to this hippie college in Ohio called Antioch. Have a great time there, as I said. Took off, became an intellectual. Realized I wanted to do that. Wanted to. I realized I wanted to have my own college. Back then, by the way, that's the origin of Renegade University. Swear to God, the first. I just, I just told the story the other day. Like first first month i think when i was in college i was like in class i was in a class and i was like you know what i'd be teaching this a different way right now and then i i suddenly realized that i was like doing doing that in all my classes all the time i was thinking about how i would be teaching this differently and better and that's you know on, in other words i was realizing that i was a teacher like you know or um, or an entrepreneur future entrepreneur both, both both very much yeah which is unusual <laughs> you know that's 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 really unusual. Like there's very few who are both, right? Um, so um, so I kind of, you know, I did really well there. I had a, just an amazing time, best time of my life. And and spent a year at the London School of Economics when I was there. That was my, my student. So, you know, I got, got some confidence from that. That was a real challenge. That was like going to boot camp for a year that was like because i wasn't sure i was at this little stupid like third rate hippie school you know so being the best student there didn't mean that much so i had to i tested myself and i there was this program where i could for the same amount of money i could go spend a year at the london school of economics which is this very prestigious very hardcore academic institution in london <clears throat> and that's that ass man that's pretty cool that's cool yeah that's that ass. yeah yeah it was scary as shit it was a hard year but like i learned a lot because i was so scared i mean because all the professors were famous and, they, you know, you'd have these little seminars and they'd be like, so Carlos, what do you think about Russell's thesis on page 186 uh, of Renegade History? Do you think that holds up against the bubble? And, you, and you're like, an, you're like 20 years old. I was 20. Like I was a junior. Fucking ridiculous. You know, terrified. Dude was on, BB, he was on the BBC the night before. Oh, shit. Hell yeah. That's and I'm like, ass. and I'm a, you know, remember, you know, I had like a C average in high school. And, you know, my story, it came from the shitty little college, like. And all the American kids were all from Harvard and Yale and Stanford and shit. And then all the British kids were brilliant. Um, but I, I did okay. I did. I didn't like. I wasn't a superstar, but I did. I did well. And I and I learned a lot though. And I learned how to be serious. I learned how to like really read and really get an argument. And like, I, I really, I, God, I learned so much that year just from the fear <laughs> of being like exposed in a classroom. Um, so, and I got some confidence, got some major confidence and realized I should go to grad school and realized I should be an academic. Um, yeah. I was thinking about being a journalist for a while. Had some internships. My college had this great internship program. Did six internships where you live in a city and like have these great jobs. So I, I was an intern for the Associated Press on Capitol Hill. I worked in the Capitol building. Oh, cool. Um, 
got to see, I was rubbing elbows with all those fucking senators and Congress people. Like I was, I saw Bernie Sanders all the time. I saw Joe Biden all the time, like right, like right next to me when I was, again, when I was like 20 years old. Um, <clears throat> um, where was I going with that? Well, you were, uh, uh, well, what did you think at the time? How did you measure up? And like, how did you measure them? Like if, like, if it was like, like, you know, what did you like, or do, do people get like, uh, what is it? Uh, I don't know, starstruck or like, oh, that's this, or were you just, they're working or, 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 you know, was it a little bit of both? I mean, I've never heard you talk about, you know, yeah. being in there in the mix, you know, what were you thinking? Like you, yeah. you had ambition for what to be a journalist, but also you're also, you're also checking them too. Oh, like, Hey, you know, like what, you know, what's up with these? Journalists. Yeah. Journalists. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the Associated Press has a bureau inside the Capitol building. Um, and that's where I was, where I was a mailboy. <laughs> so I was just delivering shit. Although they did, they did let me write a couple of little things, but basically I just, the cool part about that job is I just was there. I was like, I got to go everywhere because I, I was the mailboy. So I got to, and I had, there was a lot of downtime and you could just, it was cool. You can just like, people don't realize this when you're in Congress, you can like just go to like meetings and shit. Like it's all open. So you just like walk in and there's like Diane Feinstein, like holding a fucking, or Chuck Schumer, whoever holding a hearing, like right there, you know, you can, reach out and touch them all, all at least back then i don't know what, how security is now but certainly then it was and then there's like all these elevators and little like stairwells and shit and you're just like rub, literally like shoulder to shoulder you know with them all the time i mean I, I was like a democratic socialist then so i was all my fantasies then were about taking over the democratic party and making it like a really left-wing socialist like social democratic party like bernie sanders kind of party um like bernie i was down with bernie then for sure he wasn't, he wasn't anything then. He wasn't shit. He was in the Congress, but he, no one knew him. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> um, so I finally uh, was into left-wing politics, did some activism after college, came back to here to Berkeley and did like commie work, worked for some commie outfits labor labor network on central america can you imagine that shit like what an obvious communist front group <laughs> <clears throat> totally what we were totally supporting the sandinistas and even worse the F fmln which was the salvadoran one the fmln or the fsln i forget fmln i think the, F the salvadoran communist movement that was crushed by Reagan. I mean, they were like really bad. They were really Stalinist. Oh, okay. So now you're now you're saying Reagan. See, because I don't know a lot of this stuff. So I'm hearing you out. But you say Reagan no. and Sandin Sandinistas, and then I start 80. thinking of I start thinking of narcos and and uh, and 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 how like they you know on the narcos, but at least like on the corridos that I listened to, how they killed Kiki Camarena because he was he probably yeah. got into some shit looking and found out that there was a lot of drug movement yeah. and money movement and shit like that. So. That, that's how I know it, but I don't know it like the way you, you know, you know, it, you know, like on that front, you know, like you were. Which front? You know, saying that you were doing commie work. Oh, um, yeah. Um, unless, unless, unless you say right now, oh, yeah, I was moving. I was I, I was in the fucking planes, too. I mean, you're not going to say that, that you were like, you know. <laughs> I, I don't think so, but, you know, maybe you might say, oh, shit, yeah, I know, what's up, but I don't know, but... Visit PalomaVerdeCBD.com for all of your CBD needs. Get 25% off everything in their store by using the promo code RENEGADE. 
No, so wait, okay. So no, no, no. I'm talking about okay, so what was going on in the 80s? The the big scene on the left, like in politics in the 1980s, what everybody cared about was Central America. That was the big shit in this in the 80s. This is before Iraq. Like this was Iraq before Iraq. Like, you know what I mean? Like anybody who was like left or libertarian, that's where the action was with Central America. So we were all anybody who was anti-war, you know, was primarily focused on Central America in the 80s um to stop so, communism right to stop the communists taking over yeah, these, like, these these regimes right reagan's yeah communists were were they were advancing in, Sal in el salvador and nicaragua and they took control in nicaragua eventually the sandinistas and the the war the civil war in el salvador was even more vicious just terrible and the and that as i said the, i think that's the fmln um that communist movement they damn near took control but Reagan funneled a shit ton of military equipment to the Salvadoran government and death squads and et cetera. And they slaughtered people in the jungle. <laughs> um, so here's, I mean, were you there when I said this? You might've been there. Like, <laughs> so in the 19, so in the late eighties, I was involved in that. Like I was an activist and you know, that's what we did. So the group I worked for the labor network on Central America, we we brought together in coalition and held events with together with um activists in el salvador and nicaragua and communist trade union activists in the united states like it was we, i was i was help i was part of the communist revolution in central america like I helped in a small way, but at the end of that's totally what we were, that's what we were doing. We were like, yeah, I mean, some of the trade unions in those countries were affiliated with the communist movements and we helped basically get money to them. <laughs> um, so, so it, what's hilarious is that now, and I just said this the other night, I said, I've been thinking about this and I watched all the narcos and all the, all that shit, you know? Um, if I were in El Salvador, motherfucker, in 1980-whatever, and the communists were about to take over, give me a gun and tell me which death squad to join. Because I, I am not living under those motherfuckers. Hell no. I mean, so now, because like when I was in the movement back then, right-wing death squad, like that was, they were considered to be like the worst human beings on earth, right? Those were like the Nazis of our, of our time. Like, oh my God, those are the, the right-wing death squads of El Salvador. Now I'm like, wait, because I think they depicted them in, narco, in one of the narcos. And I was like, there was, yeah, they did, right? Yeah. I'm thinking. Uh, they, I'm pretty sure they did. And they were kind of, they were like the really scary, the ultra scary dudes. But I'm like, yo, I don't know about Colombia, but definitely in El Salvador. If, if those motherfuckers are taken over, your life is hell or dead. And so taking up guns and shooting them in the jungle like you need to you need to unless you are a communist like that are you no one is no one is anymore you know so i mean anyway that's so that's how far i've come like <laughs> like i'd join a fuck i would join a communist uh, a, a right-wing death squad like to fucking keep the, when when 30 years ago i was like funding the communists helping fund the communists. I wasn't, I had no money myself. I was facilitating.
facilitating that. That's uh, <laughs> no man. I don't think I've heard you uh, 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 speak on that too much. But, you know, you might have have never but, told uh, that. No, no, I, I've never no, heard I've never you told that story. Not like that either. Oh, all right. Thanks, yeah. man. Thanks for a little, little exclusive. Your little, 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 little something here for for those libertinos here. Um, no, that's uh, that that's interesting, man. Um, no, I um, no, I mean, I, I mean, the the narco stuff only just showed me that 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 governments, if they cut budgets, which they cut the budget on all on all of those things to Reagan that they will figure out a way to get money to if they want to continue their policy. And they'll, you know, that, that's where like all that Iran Contra shit started like funneling money and all that. Right. So, so mm -hmm. to me, when I watched that, I just, because I'm like a fiscal money guy, I just thought, yeah, okay. You, <laughs> you, you, you know, if you cut some budgets, peop, the, the swamp creatures will definitely come out looking for how they can get their money still, regardless of whatever, however they got to do it. So that, that's what I took from when I heard about that stuff. But I mean, you were, I mean, that sounds like you were more into that shit. I mean, I was a little kid at that time, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I know. Yeah. Visit PalomaVerdeCBD.com for all of your CBD needs. Get 25% off everything in their store by using the promo code Renegade. Yeah, well, also, you were never on the left. You were never part of that culture, right? I mean, uh, yeah, my parents were Democrats and all that stuff. I'm uh, 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 oh. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, my first like role, like po political stuff, was like Bill Maher. I still watch Bill Maher. I like, I like Bill Maher. You know, so I, I come from like thinking of like at least whatever that That's is. But, but, but you know, I've always been an entrepreneur my whole life. So, so you know, your parents are like mainstream Democrats. Though, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It was just basically Democrats are for the poor, Republicans are for the rich. That's yeah, no, but I'm, that's not the left. That's not the left. I mean, they wouldn't have been like talking about the Sandinistas no. and shit. No, no, yeah. they're just watching novellas, dude. I mean, if 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 anything came yeah. out of uh, like some some stuff like that, I don't even remember yeah. any of that. That was not no no. Your parents were way or you like you grew up in this stuff, man. Like that that, that wasn't what right we, we got into. Yeah, yeah that was so, my church. So, but how do we get to this? Oh, so yeah. All right, all right. So um. So I got, well, oh yeah. So while I was doing the communist organizing, I was- Oh yeah, just that to, thing, just that thing. Yeah, during, <laughs> the, <laughs> during that, um, yeah, that's what I did. God, it's fucking crazy. I mean, it had like, whatever I did had like this much effect on the world, you know what I mean? But still, that, that is totally what I was doing. I was paid to do that. I was staff, that was my job, it was a full-time job. Anyway. During that time, it was two years. Um, and also this was the first Gulf War. So I was like, the anti-war movement here was like enormous. This was like, the San Francisco shit is like huge. We blocked the Bay Bridge several times. I almost got, I did get arrested once. I almost got arrested a second time when I should have been arrested because I was blocking the Bay Bridge, almost got myself killed. Um, so it was like being in the anti-war movement at that time was it was almost like Vietnam at that time. Like we were, we were in the streets every day for like weeks back then. This was in 90, uh, January 91, right before Desert Storm. Uh, we were trying to stop Desert Storm. And we, I mean, we blocked all the streets in downtown San Francisco. It was huge. And that was during that time too. So, you know, I was really just a professional lefty activist. That was my whole, I was like super political. I was like professionally political, basically. Um, and like totally on the left. Anyway, so, but during that time I was deciding, because if you're on the left, you know, there aren't too many options in the world. Like, so um, I was deciding between law school and going to get a PhD in history because I 
I've realized I wanted to study history. I was interested in history toward the end of my college years. I was a philosophy guy and then politics and then history at the end. And at the end, I was like, I oh, know history is the shit. You got to know history to win an argument. You got to know history. You just have to know history to be good at politics. To, to, I mean, to make any serious political analysis, you got to know history or I'm not, I cannot take you seriously. You know, um, I, I've heard you say that, uh, is that like the, the, the body work? Is that the body work? Like, like you have the history that, that that's putting in the body work in a, in a, yeah. in a debate or something yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 I, I, I don't have that skill, but, 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 uh, you know, I would still at least try to throw some body shots for, but, um, but yeah, yeah. I've heard you say that, uh, um, well, I mean, I would say though, actually, you cannot achieve a knockout in my view without without knowledge of history. Like, um, I'm not. In other words, I'm not going to be fully convinced of your argument unless I'm, unless you incorporate history in it. You know, that's it's like one of my many beefs with Sam Harris. The dude knows nothing, not a goddamn thing about history before 2000. Anyway, um, so I was deciding between PhD in history and law school. Um, I had given up on journalism. Oh, oh, Associated Press. The reason I brought that up was that like the journalists there convinced me not to do journalism because they were like old crusty dudes who were like, don't do it, kid. The, the pay sucks. And also like, it was just, I realized that all they were doing was like, they were fucking stenographers for the, for the two parties. You know, I mean, they just like took whatever like press release came out of some fucking senator's office and rewrote it basically. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't what I want. I was into like, I want to do like investigative, analytical, political journalism, right? Um, so anyway, so I applied to graduates. I, I decided on history because I law sounded like too much work. <laughs> um, just and law lawyers seemed really miserable to me. And like, just I knew the work when I heard the work hours of most lawyers, I was like, fuck that. I cannot. No way. 60, 70, 80 hours, you know, for, for years and years, sometimes their entire lives. Fuck that. And it's, by the way, it's true. Like I, I've known a lot of lawyers in my life since then. And it's true. In like every case, they don't know their kids. They don't love, they don't know their kids. Like they don't have a bond with their kids. That's what they gave up for that. Now they make like three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year. And no one ever has to worry about money ever. And that's no small matter. But they don't have a bond with their kids. Anyway, so I made a, I made the right move. Because I do have a bond with my kid. Even though I've been really busy, I was never that busy. Never that kind of busy. Where I have to be in a fucking office, right? You know, an office, like fully, physically away from your family for 60, 70 hours a week. God damn. Anyway, so I applied to all the top graduate programs in history like 10 of them the top 10 base i think it was like the top 10 and uh i got rejected by all of them in a way i got i really did get rejected by all of them <laughs> columbia however had this weird thing where they this weird like really exploitative thing where they would give so you can live you don't have to so you're full-time so you're full-time study so you're studying full-time columbia did this thing where like they gave some fellowships and then they also let some people in without fellowships and made them pay the full tuition which was like 20 grand or something like that maybe 18 something like that 
just to milk them, right? And then, but they did hold out like one fellowship from the cream of that crop of all the non-funded students. At the end of the first year, the best one would get that fellowship. So that was me. I got that fellowship. Um, so that was definitely one of the top three or four turning points in my life. I mean, in terms of my career, that was that was it. I mean, I don't I don't think I could have gotten to where I've gotten without that. Um, because that was still to this day, you know, really the only time pretty much an elite institution has really stated that they value or esteem my work or my ability. That was like the only time that an elite institution really sort of gave me its seal of approval. So, and, but most importantly, it just allowed me to continue. Like I would have had to leave grad school because I couldn't afford to pay that shit every year, you know? Um, so yeah, that was, that was the shit, man. And um, it gets more complicated. There's a dark little detour, but, but ultimately it worked out and I did well. I did really well. Dissertation was fine. And um, there's all kinds of things to be said, but I started to make my intellectual turn toward the end of graduate school. I was there for years teaching, doing all sorts of stuff <clears throat> at Columbia while I was doing my dissertation. And um, I kind of just let those ideas percolate without really telling them. <laughs> and they thought I was great because I was talented and I could write well and I was a really good teacher. And so they kept giving me jobs and all these things. I, I like helped write their textbooks for them. I, I like ghost wrote somebody's book. I did all kinds of, you know, the faculty at Columbia, really, they let me into the club, you know, they gave me the sweetest jobs. And then, and then I got this great thing where I got to teach full-time at Barnard, the women's college, which is part of Columbia. It's, it's attached to Columbia right across the street. And I was there for six years. And during that time I developed all the ideas that you have in your hand right there. Um, renegade history. Yeah, while I was teaching at Barnard, I started to look at American history through new lenses, and in particular, the lens of the fight between individuals and their desires and community, the American community and its demands. And by looking at it through that lens, I just saw a whole new story. Like, it's just amazing. It was like, it was like putting a filter over a lens or something. And then suddenly you see all these things that you couldn't see before. And it's just like this whole new story emerged right away for me. And I started making those into lectures and I lectured to the students at Columbia. And I had like lecture halls of 180 students at one point. I was teaching the introduction to American history course for the all Columbia history majors. <laughs> and because they didn't know what I was teaching, the faculty don't, they don't check on each other. So they had no idea that I was talking some shit. <laughs> They had no idea that I was going, I was wilding out on their fucking precious little children. <laughs> and I was teaching them that, you know, the slaves were free and the prostitutes were feminists and all this crazy nonsense. Um, yeah. I mean, so, so yeah, so that was, was a, that was part that, that, so that is, you know, you're bringing that up and that's, that's part of like the, your book. Um, so yeah, I mean, so let's get into that a little bit because a lot of my audience, 
won't know, right? So now, now they know, all right, this guy got up. He's been down, but he got up, and he's here to a point where, uh, you know, he's uh, uh, getting his own fighting style, you know? He's, he's, he's putting his own uh, uh, style to, to it, even to maybe even um, uh, teach it to other people, at least uh, uh, of that fighting style or that filter or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, why, why are the whores, the drunkards, the gangsters, the freedom fighters of our time, and why aren't we taught that they are? And why are you going to teach us that they are? Can I give you another exclusive instead? Let's do it. That's not about that, <clears throat> but it's an exclusive that I've never Let's... told anyone. Let's do it. Um, so this thing about me not knowing if I was smart or not. Remember that? <clears throat> like, I just didn't know. I wasn't, I didn't, I was never sure that I was not smart, but I just didn't know if I was smart. I just didn't know. I really, my whole childhood, like all the way through my childhood, I just really didn't know. And I didn't never did well in school, so I never got any reason from that to believe I was smart. I never took it. No one ever gave me a test and showed me like a high score on it or anything. And and people didn't tell me I was smart. Most importantly, you know. Um, so doing the thing with the SAT that was one turning point. So I felt like okay, I can at least like get into a college. That was a turning point. Getting into the LSE, as I told you, that was a big turning point. And like, um, but. And then getting getting into Columbia, turning point, getting the fellowship at Columbia, really big turning point. Even after that, though, yo, what I'm trying to say here, after all those affirmations, basically, where like institutions are not just saying, oh, you're a smart boy, but like putting resources and funds into your ass. You know what I mean? Um, even then, all through graduate school, I still felt like these cats know more than I do. These cats are like on top of their game. They, they've got the A game, I've got the B game. Like, they're the, they're the starters on the bench at best, you know? Like, until my dissertation defense, which is a trippy um, experience where you, you write your dissertation and then you go in and for two hours you sit at a table with, like, four to five to six usually esteemed hey. scholars hate that and i gotta cut you just real quick because i gotta tell you that a lot of people aren't gonna even know what a dissertation is like on my audience man okay. they're not even gonna know so just go give a little just okay hey, this is what this is what it is because you're about to talk about it sounds like you're about to talk about some chingasos right now so so like you know <laughs> set, you know you know set it up set it up like, like you know because yeah people don't know this you know a dissertation audience. a dissertation is just a really big academic paper that you have to write to get a phd it's usually basically the length of a book and many of them become books as a matter of fact in fact mine did um so that's what it is so you write that to get it to get a phd it's the final step to getting a phd so you can become a college professor so i'm at the dissertation defense and like i got all these like very famous professors all around the table like rip it like and all they're there to do is to rip my shit up it was a shark tank because that's because, the purpose. That's their purpose is to, is to, is that is their purpose because you, you said, well, there, I mean, their purpose is to determine whether it's good or not. Oh, but okay. Like, okay. okay. But, but, but my, here's the thing. So my politics had changed and I had become, I had adopted some libertarian ideas by then. And there's some libertarian ideas in that, in that dissertation. And they were not having that because libertarian ideas are not cool at all in the academy. They're not cool at all in universities. Professors hate that shit. They're left wingers. They're all socialists. They're all liberals. They fucking hate every 
speck of it. I didn't know anything about libertarian philosophy. I came across it totally accidentally, like fucking stumbled on it. And I was like, oh, that's cool. It makes sense. Yeah. Whoa, it really makes sense. And I applied it to this study. I wrote up and they weren't having it. And they were like, basically like, nope, we're not going to allow this shit because we don't like the politics. And they had the dumbest fucking arguments because they all they had was like political objections instead of principled intellectual ob objections. And I saw that they were like, they were not smarter than me, that they weren't more not, in fact, and less knowledgeable than me. And that was all of a sudden I felt like myself rising up, like, like Eminem in that video. Is it rap God? I think where he starts to like elevate in the air. I felt like, I felt like that. I felt like I started to like elevate in the room and I looked down on them for the first time. And that was the first time in my life. I was 30, 30 something years old. And the first time in my life, I felt like, oh yeah, I'm smart. And like, yeah, I should do this. This is, yeah. I, I felt real confidence, like a deep confidence, I should say. Um, yeah, and that's awesome, like, man. Yeah. You, you, so, you, anyway, you felt it in that way. You elevated, you elevated your, 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 your existence. Yeah, I did. Well, I didn't know I had it in me. I didn't until I went through it, you know? I mean, if I hadn't done the work, if I hadn't pushed myself, if I hadn't taken the risks, I would never have known. I wanted to know, I guess, in a way, like how smart I was. Um, so I what really didn't know until then. And what happened? Like, therefore, they, therefore, what? Then, then how did it, you, you know, you, you, you got this feeling and then whatever happened. So what happened afterwards? Because at that time now you're saying that you're now a different person. So then what happened, what happened afterwards, after that, your dissertation and all that? Um, I went on a rampage on the motherfuckers without them knowing about it. So, um, so sure they didn't know and the people at barnard didn't know about me they just they just thought i they knew i could teach well they knew i was a good teacher so they i mean is my internet all right but it is what it is i'm sorry damn um so um so uh uh so let's see i was so i went across the street started teaching at barnard um and developing these lectures that became the book uh and um i think that's the story so could uh oh I well no and the, the end the end is me getting fired i mean and that's the that's the dramatic part so they didn't know it oh okay you asked me what happened after the dissertation so uh i got the job at barnard i started developing these ideas these crazy ideas that you know like as thaddeus russell you know today um and i started they don't sit in on each other's classes they don't know what's going on and other you know it's weird it's, it's just the weirdest industry people don't know this but like um but then and my classes were blowing up i was doing really well like they gave me that i became the director of the american studies program you know <clears throat> But then a, a tenure track line came open for exactly my job, meaning that like it was going to become a permanent job. My job was going to become a permanent job, but I had to apply for it. They weren't going to give it to me. And it had to be a national search, a national competition to fill this job. So 
um, they opened it up and like hundreds of people applied and I applied and I gave a job talk, which was like, that's a, as a finalist, you have to give a lecture to the faculty to get this job. And I got up there and I started and I gave my stuff about Martin Luther King being an assimilationist, wanting to make black people white culturally. And I had all the receipts in the world. Um, and half the people were like, oh my God, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. But other people went straight home and wrote all these emails saying that I was a piece of shit <laughs> and that I had no business being in the academy, no, no, no business being a professor, that I was a disgrace, that inappropriate, all this stuff. Um, and, um, and they did not give me the job and they gave it instead or they tried to give it to a woman who didn't even teach American studies, American cultural history, which is what that is. She taught something totally different. She also didn't have a PhD yet. Can you believe that? But she was black. So I was later told that um, the faculty hated my ideas. I was also told that the chair of the search committee announced that she would not hire a man. I was also, before it started, I was also told that I was not allowed to say things about black people that I did. That those are the reasons I didn't get that job. Um, so I wanna be respectful of your time and, um, and, 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 and I'd like to, to uh, uh, know that, that uh, uh, cause we have a lot to talk about and, and I'd like to have you back on the show but uh, uh, for for the purposes of respecting your time and all that, I, I'd like to ask you one last question, and um, it's basically to 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 tie this interview together, and it's to say, with all of that, how do you become a black drag queen historian? <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember. God, what? How, how did I get into that? Um, well, my my dis let's see. After my dissertation, I was teaching at Barnard. And I'm only asking because some intellectual that I know had told me that sometimes it's good to, 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 to start off uh, with, with uh, bringing that up in the beginning and, and closing it up at the end, you know? Circle back. To circle yeah. back. Some vato that's that smart, I know. That's a smart dude right there. You should listen to him more often. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, well, I, my, my next project after my dissertation was on the civil rights movement. So I started studying the civil rights movement. And I was like... Oh this thing is different than what people think it was <laughs> that there was this, and by the way, I mean, it's happened in all kinds of other movements too, but, um, this, this like relentless drive to assimilate, to like adopt the culture, the dominant culture to elim eliminate your own culture completely, usually is what it means. And to which has always been white culture. Um, and that's what Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement was all about. They were fucking, they were explicit about it. They said that shit that was like straight up. It wasn't even, you know, but it's been ignored. It's been, people didn't want to talk about that. It was like, no, no, no. It's like, oh, but they got civil rights. That's all we need to know. You know, uh, no, they wanted to eliminate, like Martin Luther King was embarrassed by jazz music until like the 1960s. Like he thought that was too black and weird. You know what I mean? Like too non-respectable. Um, 
So I started look. That's what I started looking into, and that's what got me into trouble. That's one thing they couldn't stand um, at Columbia. They just, oh my God, could not stand that shit. Um, Martin Luther King, what? Impossible. You can't say negative things about Martin Luther King. Um, so I forget how I got into the queer piece of it, but I got interested in queer theory, and we don't have time to get into that, but. Um, well, it meant that I got into sort of sexuality, like what sexuality means in a society and, and what it says about a society and or a movement, social movement like the civil rights movement. So I looked at, I don't, that's a good question. I got to think about this. Where, does, where did I? Well, anyway, to, I started to, to give you, at, to give you, I mean, some stuff that I've heard you say is like the magazines that in their culture was, was like, had uh those famous singers um you wrote an article for reason right about uh, the guy that just uh, what's his name little rich you know yeah. all, all that kind of like no, i mean just, i've heard you say i've heard you touch on upon a, 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 some of that stuff but you don't get into it a lot but you know i've heard you say it some of that stuff i'm trying to rem i just i'm trying to remember how i got into the queer angle i don't remember what what sent me there i started looking at the civil rights movement as an assimilationist movement i guess because i must have seen something about homosexuality and how they were, I mean, Martin Luther King, they were all anti-homosexual as hell. I knew that. <clears throat> and so I guess I, from there, I was like, well, what were they worried about? And then I started looking at this huge black gay subculture at the time. And the drag queen movement in it was dominant. And white people flocked to these things to go see them. And I mean, this was like RuPaul's Drag Race back in the day. We're talking the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s. Um. And it was fascinating. And the civil rights movement was like, nope, this is terrible. We can't have this. And they put an end to it. Um, and there were these big black preachers, meaning famous black preachers, Prophet Jones and Sweet Daddy Grace at the time, who were also like, Sweet uh, Prophet Jones was like flaming homosexual. And Sweet Daddy Grace had like four inch long red, white, and blue fingernails. And they both were just like, just queer and popular than Martin Luther King in the 1950s. In the 1950s, most definitely, they had huge audiences. They had like congregations all over the country. Um, they had like radio stations and they were on TV and Life magazine. And uh, so, <clears throat> and the civil rights movement disowned them, set them up actually. They accused, they hired a police officer in Detroit to off, offer to fillet to get to give head to Prophet Jones and then they put him in prison for sodomy sweet daddy grace they got a woman to claim that he he got her pregnant and then he was disgraced and the black press stopped covering both of them right away and then Martin Luther King rose and said hey we're going to wear business suits like white men do and we're going to speak the way the white men do and we're going to be Christians the way the white men are. And we're not gonna sing like Negroes. We're gonna stop singing and stop dancing and all that stuff. So, um, and he said straight up, you know, we're gonna adopt the culture of the dominant of the dominant white culture, that's it. So that's, um, the drag queens were like not having any of that, right? They were like, just this, they were the most, they were the antithesis of the white culture in every way. And, uh, anti-puritan to the bone and the civil rights movement could not have black drag queens if they were going to be full-class citizens right they're not going to be respected that was the idea if, if we have drag queens among us 
So we have to get rid of them, which is what they did. Yeah, no, I, uh, the, the first time that I uh, mm -hmm. heard you was on uh, many, many years ago on Stossel and you were talking a different story uh, uh, about uh, uh, Martin Luther King. And uh, I remember listening and I was like, oh man, this guy's talking some shit. And uh, back then I didn't think about chingasos and fire, but that's what you were doing back then. So I, I'd like to thank you for, uh, for uh, coming on today. I'd, 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 I'd like to think that you'd, you'd want to come back and because we have a lot to talk about. We didn't get too much into this, but uh, I think a lot of my sure. audience that, that hasn't heard some of this would, would be interesting to hear about different things about the 40-hour work week, uh, the unions, uh, uh, yeah. all types of different things. And, um, and, uh, and, if, and, and also, if you could um, like plug in the stuff that you got coming on. I, I know, uh, you know you got RU Texas. You got shows coming on. You got all kinds of stuff going on in your, in your school. So please uh, plug away uh, all the information where they can reach you and, and all that. Yeah, renegadeuniversity.com. Just go there and look at our video courses. We have a lot of webinars, live webinars coming up that we can you can take. And then we have streaming videos that you can watch at any time. And it's on a variety of subjects, uh, ranging from the history of World War II to philosophy, to how to make your own 3D printed gun, to cryptocurrency to lots of subjects on history and psychology and philosophy and yeah renegadeuniversity.com yeah I'm going to put I'm going to put a link down in the show notes so you guys click through there and 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 join up and uh and uh it'll support uh it'll support dad's efforts and my efforts and uh uh thank you for uh big, for, go ahead well wait hold up and and then the big one right you are this Paloma Verde is the sponsor of Renegade University Texas which is in Lockhart which is going to be October 8th to the 10th. And that's also at renegadeuniversity.com. And we have like an amazing lineup of all kinds of incredible people who have all been some of the most popular guests on my podcast, which is called Unregistered. So yes, thank so, you, Thad. Um, and uh, appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully we can do this again. Yes, sir. Anytime, dude. Thank you. Peace. Peace.